The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this second part of our Secrets of the Jungle discussion, we cover the score of the film and our thoughts on the movie itself. In the process, we revisit a song from a previous Pokeon movie and make some observations about scientists in the franchise's recent cinematic outings. There's definitely a pattern. Thanks. Well, still plenty more musical stuff to talk about uh, before we give our, our overall opinion. Uh, as usual, there is a score that goes with this movie. It is more or less kept from the Japanese side. It had, and the Japanese side has some of the folks you would expect. Shinji Miyazaki, Rei Ishizuka, who has worked in the last couple of movies, Kenta Higa Shioji, maybe I got that kind of close. He's worked, worked on The Power of Us, and I guess Princess Connect, which is some other anime. Hmm. One interesting name that they brought in um, was Shota Kageyama, which I think folks will know is um, someone who's worked off and on with the Pokemon video games and the main series. I think he may have started working around the time of Diamond and Pearl, but I'm not entirely sure on that one. But he also contributed some to the score as well. Now, just to sort of give my honest opinion here, I do not think the score to this movie is bad. And I think it might even be a tad bit better than some of the more recent ones. However, if there is some sort of like magical thing to it that certain folks who really love Shinji Miyazaki's work really love, I, to be quite honest, do not hear it. I'm not saying he's a bad composer, more that the score that's been presented here is, at least to me, kind of the weakest musical aspect of it. The, the songs went very hard into an energetic and uh, more jungly direction than the score did. So I'm not saying he's terrible, but, you know, I might have considered rolling the dice and saying, you know, if Ed Goldfarb had more time, I might say, you know, let's see what he can come up with on the, the score portion of this. I don't know. Anne, what are your kind of thoughts? Um, well, I think what I'm about to say is, like, going to speak for itself. So, like, I put this movie on, and in my mind, I was like, I'm going to have to do a podcast on it. Let's pay real close attention to the score and take notes. And so in the beginning, I was like, okay, there are a couple moments where it's like that's cool like the song is rude was like yes um and then like they kind of had that scene where he's leaving the troop and like they're going to you know see the elder and all that and i was listening to it like eh, i don't know if i love this it's okay it's not hurting anything but i don't know if i love it and then um uh what's it always safe started and i was back on board and then sh shortly after like music was the furthest thing from my mind and I'm not and like I think again that just kind of speaks for itself like either the plot was that good that I didn't care about the score or the score there, there was nothing super special about the score to grab my attention it wasn't until the very end some of those um 
those tracks near the end like ambition and truth and protecting the forest, a vain struggle, yeah. um, like where I kind of started to get back into being like, oh, yeah, music is a part of this movie um, and started to pay attention to not just the the songs, but the backing track. So I'm kind of with you in that, like, I don't feel the score was particularly special. I do think there were moments that were special and like, not necessarily had I more time, but like, I think over time, I will maybe be able to have a better way to break down like who of these guys did what because i i often feel that um there's a lot of old guard in pokemon and like the things that have been the most like the biggest changes uh in the past several years and the most interesting changes have come when they've kind of brought in a new director or a new writer or um a new animator to the animation team. Like those are the moments where like you start seeing a little bit of new life kind of breathe into the franchise. And I think music is a place where they kind of could benefit from starting to do that. And I, I hope that all these other credits besides Shinji Miyazaki on the score is a sign that like they're, they're willing to take advantage of Shinji Miyazaki's experience and talent, but like, are willing to maybe start trying some new things and getting some new people trained up and able to do this job and take the show in new directions, I hope. Well, well, to mention something related to that, on the main anime, um, although they do use some of Shinji Miyazaki's compositions and stuff in there, um, sort of the main composer on the Japanese side for the TV show, I forget his name, but the, he came in within the last few years, I think with Journeys, and, you know, I've listened to some of his stuff. I think it is a bit, I, I do enjoy it, I think, a bit better. But um, it would be unfair if we didn't at least consider other possibilities here as to why the scores, at least, you know, Anne and I are largely in agreement. If you think they're, they're still going great, that's, you know, you're entitled to your opinion. Yeah. I absolutely. And, and you're winning. <laughs> like, More or less. You're, get, but, you're getting um, what you want out of life. <laughs> but um, I, I think Anne and I are kind of in agreement that we would like to see something more aggressive, more ambitious out of that. And part of me wonders, maybe it's not just the composition. It could also be the orchestra. Now, I don't think that the orchestras that they use to make these scores are untalented. That is not what I think the actual issue is, or that they don't care about the material. I think it may actually be the opposite. I think they might be uh, the weight of the Pokemon franchise and its reputation worldwide as, you know, the highest grossing media franchise in, in, in human history may actually be producing music that is a little too safe uh, in terms of scoring elements and a performance that is a little too safe. And it might, one thing they could try that I've suggested is that when a movie is based in a certain part of the world or a certain city or a certain country or whatever, is, you know, obviously this would have been very difficult with Secrets of the Jungle with the pandemic and whatnot, but maybe in the future they can contact like a symphony orchestra in that city or in that country or something like that and have them get them into a studio and have them perform the score for the movie, which I think would be a really cool way and it would give sort of a, a fresh set of folks. Um, a chance to to work with the material and stuff. And I think you'd get something that would maybe make the movie actually give it a better sense of place. 
um, which has kind of been my problem with uh, the last, I don't know, I, I sort of draw the line after movie 10, after the Dark Ride movie, that things sort of go on a, a more and more vanilla uh, direction, with a few exceptions, like obviously the, um, the Hoopa movie. Um, and I think shaking things up there, you know, you might need to try a few different things, I think would be um, a good idea. Because we, we know we've gotten some really neat stuff in the past, like with the Dark Ride movie, like with the uh, the Latias and Latios movie is, is an absolutely fantastic score. Even the non-accordion stuff in there is really, really good. But those were, were some of my thoughts. And... Uh, I, uh, bless you. I, I did have you try and do <laughs> do some research to get sort of a Japanese opinion on some of these things. Um, you did do. Yeah. You unfortunately weren't able to track down like any Japanese newspaper reviews of the last couple of Pokemon movies or blogs or stuff. But you did try to find some reviews on like uh, Amazon JP and stuff like that. What did you find? Yeah, yeah. As you said, the kind of the news outlet that I found was mostly basically just this thing is releasing and this date and this is maybe a person of note who worked on it. Um, but I did, uh, yeah, the voices of the people, I found a couple. There's one uh, for the birth of Mewtwo the, that I thought was interesting because I feel like this person would get along with you, Stephen. He had a, well, he or she, they had a lot to say about um, the mixing and the mastering of that, um, the track, uh, let's see, that kind of went over my head a little bit, um, but there's a track, The Birth of Mewtwo, it's like the same song in both movies, the sound quality has become much better in time compared to those recorded originally because of Vance's current technology, um, mastering here is almost no complaint, however, Birth of Mewtwo was a dissatisfaction from the ta- original recording, translation is something like Rocket Group Oral Background and mm-hmm. Arrangement in Satoshi Battle Determination. Like, I'm so sorry, everybody. Um, but he feels like it, it. he thought originally that, like, the, I guess the original movie, like, it was a mistake of the technology to record. But, like, this time it's digitally remastered from the master tape, which means that the problem was probably with the person who created the track or something. So, like, he had a lot to say. So um, there are definitely a lot of people in Japan, it seems, who have opinions, just like we do, about um, music mastering and, like, very minutiae. But more to the point of, like, how the music actually made you feel, there's an Amazon review for, um, let's see, The Power of Us, of a person who says that they kind of bought a soundtrack every summer, like they watched the movie in the summer and then bought the soundtrack or vice versa. Um, and then the year of Power of Us listened to it several times, but compared to last year's soundtrack, it's they kind of have the impression that there's a lot of gentle songs that feel very well-rounded overall, which isn't really a, a compliment to them. Like they feel like that that's nice, but there's no killer tune and one of the one of the examples they bring up is like the theme of the Arasion. Uh, but they do say that the sound quality of the orchestra is very beautiful and that the songs often have like a healing feeling to them. So they like the soundtrack, but think some of the previous work is better. 
Um, but for contrast from Billy Billy, there's a review that says Shinji Miyazaki is indeed the master of soundtracks of Pokemon series and a role model for this person. So a, a bit of a, a bit of a spectrum of people. Uh, again, a lot of very different opinions, just like ours. <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, you know, we, we could, we talked a lot about the score in the last couple of movies, um, you know, especially since like during the XY and in uh, I Choose You, they did replace most, if not all, of the Japanese score. Uh, that's kind of what I came up when I was referring to kind of the roll of the dice and see what what Ed could come up with. That's kind of sort of what I was referring to. They still do replace a lot of the score elements in the TV show. And, you know, while you are, as a listener, you know, entitled to prefer, mix and match, whatever, I get the feeling that it's like either a a nothing to a lot of folks or maybe in some cases it pales in comparison to their i don't know like some of this is going back to Mewtwo strikes back evolution since there you have two several points of comparison you're comparing it both to the here in the west you're you're comparing it both to the 98 uh Japanese version score which does have some significant differences and also to the 99 dub score and i i did see f- Folks in the reviews I read in English of that who sort of said, yeah, this new score, it's not as good as either of those. And there were a handful of folks who who did like the new score, and I got a feeling it wasn't just because they had kept it from the Japanese version. This is admittedly kind of a, a tough nut to crack with all of that. And to be honest, the, the opinion on YouTube's Strikes Like Evolution is largely meh overall, not just in the music department, um, that missed folks' expectations in uh, a number of areas, sometimes to the point where it made them angry, sometimes not. Sometimes to the point where they just said, I'm just going to watch the the one I grew up with, um, or even the original Japanese version. So I don't think there's a, like, well, well, the current score paradigm definitely has its fans. I get the feeling just from talking to folks. You know, I haven't had a chance to talk to too many po- folks in person about Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution because, of course, of the pandemic. But from discussions I've had beforehand and stuff, I don't think the I love the Japanese score just the way it is is really like there's a decent number of people in it. I don't feel it's a huge percentage of the overall market. We do have a, a fair bit of a disadvantage there. Remember, this is a show that's aimed at kids, many of whom are too young to get on uh, on the internet. Or even verbalize their feelings. <laughs> so you're not going to see them on Facebook or Twitter, at least uh, officially. So I don't know. Like I said, I think that the score here in Secrets of the Jungle, they need to start taking some more risks because the, the vocal songs went very much in uh, a wholehearted or like a whole like a, a full-throated uh, into, like even on the Japanese side, there's some stuff that really went into the jungle theming much more and went much more emotional than the score did. And the score doesn't have to follow that 100%. And it wasn't such a difference that it was, you know, ruined the movie or anything, but it was enough of a difference that you noticed it, that I noticed it, I think Anne noticed it, I think a lot of folks noticed it. And I get the feeling when people are complimenting the music on this movie, I've seen very few bad things about the music in this movie compared to, like I said, like uh, Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution uh, got uh, some compliments, a lot of eh, and a fair amount of err. This one has mostly been either not mentioned at all or mentioned positively. I still get the feeling they're talking more about the vocal songs than they are about the score. 
And I feel like in a franchise where we have, you know, you look at the games and the, the main games, the side games, and it seems like they're doing such interesting work, such thematic. Not everything is like, you know, radio worthy, as I would call it. But you listen to stuff like like in the in Sword and Shield, like in Pokemon Masters, those are some of the best ones. Mystery Dungeon. You know, even stuff, you know, maybe not so much Pokemon Go that has somewhat different music demands as a game you might be playing while crossing the street. But I, I feel like the scores to the anime should be maybe you know, the demands of scoring a TV show or a movie are a little bit different than a video game. But I feel there should be more correlation. They should be more in line tonally than they are and stylistically than they are. And does that make sense? It makes sense. I I don't know if I agree as strongly in some areas, but like it definitely all makes sense. And definitely I agree in the sense that like I would I would like to see them try some new things. Um what those new things are is, you know, up to them. And, like, I can only hope that, you know, in the sense that I've been talking for many years about, like, I'd like to see some new things done with plot and direction um, overall in the movie. And the past couple years with this alternate timeline, we've gotten some really good Pokemon plots in our movies that, you know, for a while there we were struggling with. And, the general direction of the Pokemon movie was in a strange place, but like they've really gotten some great movies in the past couple of years. So I can only hope that like, that's kind of a trend that is continuing through the company and that the music scoring will hopefully like start following that suit. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, I don't want to completely dunk on Shinji Miyazaki and his crew because first of all, I know that they've done things in prior movies that I've enjoyed a lot more than what we get here more recently. But I think, you know, just like with the sort of the plot and, and stuff that made them do this alternate universe, you know, they were the movies were in a space I, that I think is a textbook example of you, know, you become so risk averse that not taking a risk becomes the risk, you know, that if you don't take a risk, you're just going to keep getting, you know, some fraction of what you get, got before and you never and eventually that's not going to be enough. And basically they decided, you know, after Vulcanian and the Mechanical Marvel, uh, or maybe maybe even before that, that they decided, okay, we need to shake some things up here. And they did that with the plot. I think the the score needs needs some sort of, of shakeup, whether that's bringing in all new people that might be a little bit drastic, but just picking a new direction and a new philosophy. And, you know, like I said, maybe doing some of those things, because like, Suppose, you know, we talked about The Power of Us. That's set in San Francisco. San Francisco is a city with immense musical history. Everything from, like, Creedence Clearwater Revival to Metallica to, you know, all sorts of things. The hippie movement of the 1960s that you, you could pull from to create, you know, different motifs for different characters and stuff like that. And I think that would be really interesting. Same thing, Genesec movie. Set in New York City, one of the most culturally diverse cities in the world. You know, similar things for some of the places, the movies that are set in Europe. Um, every European country has its own musical history and instruments. And maybe they bring in a little bit of that. Like there might be a little Greco-Roman stuff in Arceus and the Jewel of Life. Um, and Arceus's theme is kind of nice there. 
Um, but I feel I, I want them to go harder, um, like the game, the main games do. Maybe not quite as much. You know, it doesn't have to be like there is one track in The Power of Us right near the beginning during the opening credit sequence that really goes out there. It doesn't need to be quite that much necessarily. But I think it would integrate better with the franchise as a whole if they push things a little bit harder. You you said it well. Like, there's... Yeah. So I mean, if you like Shinji Miyazaki, what they're currently, what he's currently putting out, you know, you're certainly entitled to your opinion. But I, I I think there is there would be a benefit to doing something more aggressive. And I think the in this particular movie, Secrets of the Jungle, the vocal songs absolutely on the Japanese and Western sides went there. Uh, not always with the raw jungle elements. In some cases, very much so. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to claim that like, oh. They they added all this stuff in as soon as the like the test audience survey data from Netflix from Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution came in. Oh boy, are we in trouble? If we, now I don't know that that's really what happened or the sequence of events there. It might have prodded them along a little bit to make some changes in there. But score wise, I think we need to see see more in in the future. Like I don't think that the, the movies are in any danger of falling off the face of the earth or anything like that. But I, I see it as another opportunity to improve another aspect of them. I like what you said there, like another opportunity Because like, I think both of us would agree, regardless of what happens with the score, we are going to see these movies and we are going to have a great time and we are going to enjoy them. And that's like, so again, if you love these things the way they are, that's great. Um, There's nothing wrong with it, but there's an opportunity, I think, for it to be more. And I think none of us would be hurt to see them try more and different and new and um, like continue to improve we'll see where things go from here like i said i'm not angry i just feel like these could be musically more than what they are all right well with that being said let's go sort of our overall opinions about the music here i have a few additional thoughts of some interesting ideas and other stuff like that so I do think the insert songs really do add a lot to it. And to be honest, you know, we did kind of bag on the score, but having the insert songs, I think, takes some weight off of there. Uh, that's probably one of the things that really didn't benefit the score in Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution is that because those English songs weren't there, that for a lot of folks that made them concentrate more on the score that was and put even more of a burden on it. But um, so I do think, you know, the, the insert songs, A, they might have taken some pressure off of the score in terms of the, the musical reputation of the movie, but I think they were generally a good ad- addition, although both sets of vocal songs, whichever version you're watching, I feel like they didn't, they didn't mess so badly that they seemed completely out of place or took you out of the movie for the most part, but they didn't meld super well, like maybe the elements in like the fifth movie where you have vocal songs, you have several different instrumental styles for different parts of the movie and despite being distinct they kind of work together more i don't know ann is that kind of the the overall like vibe you got from this i would definitely say like the vocal tracks helped the score in a lot of ways like it one way just taking some of the weight off of the score because i think Thinking back, a lot of people, myself included, would think, oh, I loved the score of Coco because in, in our minds, the vocal tracks are part of that. I would hope that they brought some extra influences and like different ideas to the composers. I would also agree that the score that didn't involve the vocals 
was for me very forgettable, although I had a lot of moments, as I said, where I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, that kind of brings me back in. So again, it kind of, in some ways, improvements are being made. In some ways, I think there are other opportunities they could take part of. But overall, I liked the music in this movie. Whether some parts of the score were more weak-linked than others, yeah, that's up for debate. But overall, I really liked the mu- music in this movie, and and I think I'll take away fond memories of it. And in that, for so in that, it's a net positive for me. Yeah, yeah, it it definitely is. And w- and like I said, going back to score, there it felt like there were points where like it's almost like there was something underneath, like a frozen pond that was about ready to break out there, but didn't quite make it. Um, so it's not like, I don't think it's hopeless or anything like that. I think there is a possibility of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, if you just, you do have to kind of choose a different direction and a different, somewhat different philosophy and stuff like that. So, uh, I did want to throw in one other thing there. Another song that's not in this movie, not that I would really expect it to be, but I think would work really well. It's a, it's a Pokemon song. I wanted to go all the way back to the soundtrack to Pokemon 2000. And, um, you know, we kind of covered this song last year when I interviewed the engineer that mixed it, but I wanted to sort of uh, float out there. And do you think the song They Don't Understand, maybe with some readaptation and, you know, obviously a new arrangement and stuff, could somehow have been used in conjunction with this movie? Yes, I can think of 15 different reasons. (laughs) Like, Like, yeah, no, there's a lot in that song that could apply to... Coco versus his family, Dada Zerudo versus the elders and the rest of them, Ash versus humanity. Like, there is the, oh gosh, even Zed and the other scientists and the good scientists versus him. Yes, there's a lot of places where that, and like the idea of a generational gap. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just in case you're not aware, <laughs> uh, they don't understand is part of a, I guess, a subgenre of pretty much Western Pokemon songs. I know of no Japanese equivalents to this that are the adults don't get Pokemon uh, subgenre, along with <laughs> blah 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 from the second, also from the second movie soundtrack. Like it started off, I believe, as something as a as a, a romantic uh, boyfriend girlfriend type of song, and that's where the you know only we know what it means and all that stuff comes from. And uh, I guess the the guy's son, uh, Steve Diamond's son, Cole, uh, gave them the idea of reworking into a book song, and so it was. And then that song was in turn performed by Dream Street. It's on the second movie soundtrack. You know, it's got lines like, you know we got our own special language that only we can speak, and only we know what it means, and, you know, and understand Pokemon. It's something I only realized, like, after, like, sometime after the first time when I watched the movie, maybe during the second time, I'm not sure exactly. So I can't guarantee that if I had some crazy reason been hired as a consultant, I would have thought of this (laughs) during production. But I think that actually, in hindsight, if they were going to bring back an older Pokemon song, that might have been the one. And I kind of wanted to sort of leave on that as sort of a a thought to, to ponder. Um, it would have to be reworked a fair bit, and some lyrics would probably have to be changed. But boy, I think they could have made something of that. So not faulting them terribly for not doing it. It may not even have been possible. You know, I mean, obviously one of the members of Dream Street uh, passed away from COVID last year, so that bringing the band back together might not even have been an option, if they, even if they reused the song. But kind of wanted to toss that out there. And any other thoughts or things or ideas you wanted to toss out there, things they, they could have tried but didn't or... 
I can't think of anything else they could have tried but didn't. I, I like the potential and they don't understand. I'm intrigued by the idea of a world where they hire you and me on as consultants to a Pokemon movie and what monstrosity we would create. But <laughs> I, I would seriously consider such an offer. I do not expect one. <laughs> You're right. But um... you, you know our emails. Um... <laughs> Flying Without Wings is a well-written song, but its inclusion on the Pokemon 2000 soundtrack is a bit odd. There is plenty of flying in the movie, but most of it clearly involves wings. If you're willing to ignore that disparity, however, there are a number of lines that do match up well. We see several friendships, familiar and new, featured in the film. You can argue that characters like Professor Oak and Slowking lead reasonably solitary lives, for that matter, you could even say the same thing about Shimudi Island itself, being fairly isolated from the rest of the world. If you're looking for the most Pokémon of the lyrics, though, those are probably in the bridge, as striving towards the seemingly impossible is a running theme of the franchise. Even after that, however, there is one more parallel to be drawn. Delia winds up coming face-to-face -face with Ash in a somewhat unexpected time and place, at least for him. While this final part of the song may have been originally intended as being between two lovers, I find that it still works for the mother-son reunion. Anyway, the next time someone tells you this song doesn't match up with the movie, I hope you have some different ideas to give them. Thanks. Hi folks, just a quick heads up. While this is a Pokeon movie, we do discuss some of the film's darker scenes, so consider yourself warned. Okay, well, as much time as we spent talking about the music, there's still a movie here. <laughs> I think sort of the, the big thing we should focus on here is the, uh, you know, Dada Zerude. Zerude. I, I keep wanting to say it in three syllables. It is only two. Um, and Coco relationship, which is, you know, the heart, almost literally, of the film. Um, you know, and, and it's a pretty good relationship. I mean, Ash is kind of almost relegated. He's, he's a point of view character in this one, which he kind of is in a lot of the movies. Uh, but especially in this one, the story is not so much about him. And I, I felt like the two characters, uh, uh, Dada Zerude, Zerude and uh, Coco, got along and had a very interesting, you know, back and forth and stuff like that. Uh, and how did you feel about, you know, that, that was really the crux of the movie. How did you feel about it? I have a lot of feelings. I have so many feelings. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this was a really interesting movie. And I really loved that. They kind of brought up that uh, Papa Zerud didn't really have a good father role model growing up, and like so, a lot of his like, I guess I just don't know how to be a dad. Like I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like that, that kind of spoke to me a bit because my my father also kind of grew up in a family where they they did not have a father figure. Um, and I, my mom once told me like, you, you know, when they got married, and he was like and they started having kids that one of the things that they talked about, like, he was like, I don't know. I don't know how to be a dad. I don't know how to parent these kids because I didn't have a functioning family. Like my, I didn't have a dad around. My mom was you know, just doing her best. That kind of always struck me as interesting because growing up, I was like, oh gosh, my daddy's the best. And he tucks me in. He's so, I love him. He's perfect. And yeah, he did a really great job with us. So like there's a kind of I like that sense of like Papa Zarud is kind of doubting himself a lot and not sure what he's doing right, if he's doing anything right. 
And from Coco's point of view, Coco's like, you are the best dad. I love you. You are giving me the all the emotional things I need, even though we're having a little bit of conflict. Like, we are still a very tightly knit family unit. So that, that's something that spoke to me and I thought was very special. Yeah. Yeah, the... I don't want to go fully into it. The relationship with my dad is complicated um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I'll just say, you know, my parents are divorced and have been for a long time. I'm, I'm honestly much closer with my mother, uh, which, you know, this 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 movie is, is not, you know, bad for, for mothers and their children either. And I think, you know, this is sort of a type of story that, yes, they could have done earlier in the franchise – but has a different ring now that the franchise has been around long enough that some of the original fans have kids um, mm-hmm. are are getting to that point. Um, some of them, you know, some of them are even old enough to see this this movie, and I think that's one reason for you know, like I said, why we're seeing this movie now. Even though they certainly could have made it ten, twenty years ago, and there certainly were family based aspects, particularly to like the second and third movies. Definitely had had that kind of dynamic going on there, but I think that we got certainly got something of, of a different movie because it is being made now, and that that relationship mm-hmm. between those two characters, which is mirrored many times, either as a friendly relationship like between Coco and Ash, or between Ash and his mom. Dada Zarud, you know, he mentions, oh, I, I never really knew my father. Presumably, something happened to him when he was very young, or something like that. That that's big there. I, the next thing I wanted to kind of talk about is the use of language in the film. Now I don't mean there's there's no like this is still a Pokemon movie. There's still no there's no dirty words or anything. What I actually mean is, initially in the movie we hear Coco and uh, Zarud and the other Zarud talking to each other. You know, in whatever language you're watching the movie in, it's not really until Ash has an encounter directly with them and they sort of bring them in there that we sort of realize, oh they weren't really speaking. Uh, you know, human talk there. They were talking to the other Pokemon and stuff like that. And and they, you know, Coco is, is as the film goes on, sort of becomes bilingual um, and stuff like that. Uh, one of the reviews I read, the reviews were maybe not as positive as the fan base, which is kind of to be expected, although there weren't too many of them that, that were really, like, really down on the movie. They seemed to at least think it was okay. Uh, but one of them said they pulled a hunt for Red October, which I find a very interesting comparison <laughs> where, where in that care thing, you know, the, the you hear some folks speaking Russian, and then it's sort of there's sort of a weird little focus trick, and then they're speaking English. This is kind of a bit like that. What did you think of that? I loved it. So, anyone who has listened to my podcast knows the language barrier between human and Pokemon is my jam. Languages, in general, are my jam. Like, I will be publishing a book. Hopefully this next year where, like, objectively there might be a plot in there, but it's really about the language barrier. Like, this is my thing. I love how they did it, how they didn't treat, like, they just treated it like when Coco and his Dada are talking together, they talk, quote, normal. When he's talking with Ash, he's talking how Ash would talk and perceive it. It's very fascinating. I love that there are moments where you can tell that just because they said it in human language doesn't mean Coco didn't understand. Yes. No, I love a lot of things about the language and the use of language and the way people's words change and the way the humans 
had prejudice towards the the Pokemon during the fireworks thing, that whole debacle, because they couldn't speak the same language. And it wasn't until somebody explained the situation that they realized, oh, I guess I was a little harsh. And that is something that I bet kids and adults can relate to in the world we go in now, where when we don't understand a situation, we can be very judgmental. And often the problem is just we don't speak the same language. I'd like to say that most of the world's problems are caused by either <laughs> inadequate or a lack or a problem with communication. Um, really, that's quite true, especially like in the social media age where, you know, things are, are – everything's a soundbite, it seems, sometimes. Um, and that's why – one reason I like doing these long-form discussions, even though it's way more detailed than most people will ever care about these <laughs> movies – I, I think we 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 come a lot closer to a more complete picture of these things than you get from you know a, a tweet or a post or whatever. Mm. All right. Well, let, let's talk about some of the the plot elements in here. There's uh, there's one scene that is frequently mentioned as it, if if there's a that scene in this movie, <laughs> it is a well, it's a like a dash cam recording. On uh, Zed's uh, like SUV or whatever, they they have a couple of those at the company, and it's from like ten years ago, and it shows Zed basically. I mean, th this movie, one of the criticisms of it is it, it's a bit derivative uh, of stuff like Tarzan, Planet of the Apes, and other stuff. There's only so many fish out of water stories out it's there. Derivative of other Pokemon movies sometimes. <laughs> but um, I guess you could consider, you know, maybe this part is derivative of Detective Pikachu, but. <laughs> uh, I probably have to make too much fun of it because, you know, Zed runs the, the couple and their child off the road. Their car catches fire and eventually, you know, they manage to push the, the kid away and that's that's Coco. But Zed just sort of walks away and leaves the uh, the other folks, the, the, the mom and dad, to die. And, you know, when, when, the, when the, the, the gas tank explodes or whatever on, on the vehicle. One of the darkest things we've seen in a in a Pokemon movie. Um, I do wonder. There's a decent chance this movie would have gotten a PG rating had it been released to theaters in the U.S. You know, just kind of based on that scene. What did you think of that? Um, of that specifically, um, it's hard to say. Like, there's a lot in this movie that, as you say, is maybe derivative of Tarzan. There, but again, derivative of other Pokemon movies. We've seen scientists looking for the healing spring to save humanity, and there's a scientist on board who does not care about the nature and the Pokemon. Like, we've seen a lot of these tropes. What I liked about this movie is that it presented all these things in a way that felt fresh and new and made me care. I found the Zed's, like, that whole thing where he's talking into the camera and his devolve into insanity. <laughs> um, I found that yeah, very yeah. I, interesting. I, I, you know, he's obviously got some sort of mental illness, which I don't want to make too much fun of. It doesn't excuse his actions, of no, course. No, but like he's clearly, he clearly could benefit from someone giving him a hand. Yeah. Redirecting his thoughts. Um, but... I appreciated that because it felt like, again, a, just a fresh take on it. Like, it's not like I want power. I want to be the best, although he kind of does. It's I want everyone to see that I'm right. Like, he's kind of lost sight of his goal of helping humanity and his desire to prove that he's right. And that's new. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, he also believes that, well, if we do what, what I want to do, then we can, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of how he justifies what he does to the, to the couple and, you know, even potentially their child. You know, he could have easily killed all three of them. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, sorry, it just, you know, I just think what an awful, I mean, this is one of the, even with all the team leads that we've seen in here, but this is, this is extremely, this is, See, the person I thought of with this was almost like Elizabeth Holmes from from Theranos, you know? Mm. Um, Now, she didn't obviously run people off the road who tried to, you know, go to, like, the SEC or or to the New York Times or whatever it was. She never did anything like that. But, you know, back with her stuff, you know, she had medical stuff that didn't do what it said it did. And, like, she was so convinced she could change the world that... She's willing to put other people in danger. And now it's very different kind of here where where the guy is taking a very active role in offing his boss and his wife and possibly their kid, you know, because mm-hmm. that, that's what he's doing. He's trying to get the data that they've the, that his boss has said, you know, we're, we're not going to exploit this. I'm in charge here, you know, whatever. It's not right to do this. And they try and, you know, obviously, I guess, you know. Ten years ago, maybe it was easier to hide every trace of that or whatever. It's a, it's a dark scene, and it surprised a lot of folks that it went there. Mm-hmm. Um, but as again, as dark as it is, I think that's something that in this day and age, like we we encounter those scenarios. Maybe not on such a grand scale, but at a very young age, we are kind of faced with these kind of hard decisions and people who don't always want to. You know, as as the um, Coco's parents, Coco's dad said, you know, wait and put the brakes on it and try to find a better solution and talk about it. Or the female scientist who, you know, was going along with the plan and then was like, you know what? We have gone too far. I'm sorry, Zeruto. I'm very sorry. How can we make this right? So I think like that presents a, a lot of conflicts that children repeatedly encounter in a very fantastical and grandiose and scary way. But I think those are all things that, you know, as much as people were shocked it, it went that dark, I think your kids can relate to it more than you think they can. Some of them definitely. Um, mm-hmm. So speaking of a little bit dark stuff, towards the end of the movie, there's a, a final confrontation between Coco and, and Zed where it's not exactly clear to me what's exactly happening. This is after Coco somehow uses that... that voice of the forest or whatever it is to heal Dada Zarud and then Zed he's he's been thrust out of he's out of the mech he was in that Pikachu disabled and he's like he can't believe that the other guy he's still alive and it's like he's it's hard to tell exactly what's happening at one point it seems like Coco is so angry that some of the characters seem to think that Coco is going to try to kill Zed and at the same time, I've heard other folks say, well, like, is Zed, is he, like, about to commit suicide and jump off the, this is really, I mean, for a kid's, you know, for a Pokemon movie, I mean, even, like, you compare it to the stuff in, like, Mewtwo Strikes Back or Latios Passing Away, this is still kind of describing this stuff in, in language, in, in, you know, in words is honestly a little bit difficult. But what did you think of that scene? I... Overall, I liked it. Again, I am a grown adult without children, so that might not necessarily be the, you know, defining opinion on this. 
I, I agree with you that it's very difficult to put into words. And it's something that I kind of want to analyze more um, before I be like, okay, this is what's going on in the scene and this is what it means. Um, it's entirely possible that it means different things to different people. People who maybe have not felt the kind of justified rage that Coco would have been feeling in that scene might read it differently. People have not felt the things that Zed was going through might read it differently than those of us who maybe have. Um, and that's fine, I think. Again, as a grown adult who <laughs> sees a therapist weekly to like sort through complex feelings, um, I liked it. I thought it presented a lot of really interesting emotions and that Coco came out of it with a choice that nullified the conflict. That I was very afraid that it was going to be one of those scenarios where the villain, like, you know, denies everything to their dying breath and then dies and that takes care of everything. I was very happy that Coco found a solution where the bad guy lives. And whether or not he faces justice, hap like, apparently he goes to jail, but what his sentence is, etc., that all happens off screen, and we don't care about it. And Coco made a, a decision that was right for him morally. Like, again, I'm happy with it. I think it needs some more watchings for me to have more articulate thoughts than that. Yeah, I've watched the movie twice, and I'm still not sure I completely understand the scene because, like, not long before that, Ash says, you know, we're not going to let you get rid of, of Coco's parents twice. And, you know, I, I have to wonder if I were in Ash's shoes and saw what happened there. It's like, shoot, did I just give Coco, like, and intentionally give Coco permission to kill Zed, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, yeah, at the end of the movie, did you see him? I mean, A, first off, someone, uh, <laughs> Team Rocket finds, yeah, this is a bit of an awkward tradition. They, they snoop. They finally break into his office, and like I said, he's, he hasn't deleted this recording. I don't know if he could never bring himself to do it or to look at it again or, or what or, or what that is. But, um, you know, they, they keep that. Now, I, I would have thought that if Team Rocket, if they let, like, the headquarters organization know, hey, we, we got into that guy's office, turns out that he, you know, he, he murdered some of his coworkers. You'd think that the, the Team Rocket higher-ups would be like, oh, hey, let's keep that and use that as blackmail or something like that on him. But I guess they're so disgusted by it <laughs> that, you know, without comment, they sort of turn it over to the authorities without, you know, attaching their names to it. Like they, they put it on a, I don't know, they put it on a, a flash drive or a memory card or something and slip it underneath the police station or for Officer Jenny to find. And at the end of the movie, we see he's also basically confessed it to half a dozen people in an earlier scene. So there's, you know, it's certainly <laughs> enough to probably get a warrant, you know, with, with that many of his coworkers as eyewitnesses who will, you know. So. Yeah, that that's that's an interesting dynamic in this film, and I'm not sh not still not entirely sure what I think about it. But um, yeah, a bit of a turn, and you know, I guess on a bit of a lighter note, the last couple movies, if you want to say call this lighter, have been pretty tough on scientists. <laughs> uh, like, well, you look at the, like Detective Pikachu and Laurent gets presumably killed by. We don't see the Glasgow Winter obviously because the hologram cuts off right as it's about to do that. You know, and then Fuji, since we got the Mewtwo Strikes Back remake, uh, him and his crew all get, you know, incinerated or blown to Smith Range or whatever by Mewtwo. 
it's interesting that Zed is the one who, despite all the horrible things he's done, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because they talk about like the law of the Zeru during the thing there, and in the end, the bad guy is taken away by the law. I found that it, an interesting parallel in that part of the story. Yeah. I guess that wasn't really that much lighter, but it's something we had to certainly address <laughs> here, you know? Hopefully we'll get some um, more uh, scientists who do good in the world and good things happen to them and <laughs> are good role models to us all. <laughs> well, maybe there, maybe there's hope then for that remake of, of Power of One at some point. <laughs> I mean, granted, Oak and Ivy don't really achieve a, a ton in that movie, but at least they don't make anything worse. Yeah. And, you know, um, they are they are playing their own special part in the solution of that movie. So I guess. Oh, well, in any case, uh, going on to some other characters, although this this is about a, this movie is really about a father-son relationship, they're actually, we kind of mentioned this, um, I don't know if we've said it in this discussion, we definitely, I think we said it in our pre-discussion that the opening and ending themes, the opening credits and closing credits themes in both versions, Japanese and Western, are performed by women. This this could have been, you know, a very male-centric movie with virtually no female characters. I mean, obviously, yesterday we just mentioned Officer Jenny at the end. I think we see we must see Nurse Joy because there's some scenes at the Pokemon Center. There are a couple of female scientists. The the one, of course, the Coco's mom who who perishes, and then um, uh, one of the, one or two of the other scientists in the current group is female as well. Like I said, I, I think I mentioned Dash's mom. If I didn't, she was in there as well. So, because I think you know, especially in this day and age, the relationship between the two of them is well, there is a, a paternal you know aspect to it. It still can be appreciated by it. But I did find it interesting that there is actually a lot of female, not certainly as much as like you know, Power of Us, where we have uh, Risa in there as sort of the the co protagonist of that movie. You know, one of the major things in there. Oh, sorry, I'd, I'd like to take a moment to point out, like, like, not every story has to have a ton of female characters. At, like, it's not necessarily unfeminist just because women aren't present. What mm-hmm. is what is I think uh, the problem that a lot of women have, rather than just oh, there's no women, is more that the women when they're there, how are they treated? This if this is a story about a father son. That's not necessarily a bad thing that it's all about the dudes. What Mm -hmm. I love about this movie is that it's a movie about a father-son, but they also make some parallels to mother-son relationships. Yes. The women who – every woman in this movie, like, is a very interesting character, even if they have but a small role to play. And that's great. And so, like, I don't want, like, us to – anyone to think, like, as we bring that up that, like, oh, there's no women in this movie. Like, it's not feminist. It's like – it's a movie about a boy and his dad. <laughs> so sorry, off my box. Yeah, I mean, I may have played things a little too too woke there. This going back to our our, our, our no no no. It's good to be woke. It, like I just want to make sure like people don't get like the wrong assumption from what we're saying. Mm. <laughs> we kind of had. I, I I I'll admit I did kind of one one reason I included Anne here is I didn't want this whole for this discussion series. I didn't want everyone to be a white male. That said, and I, <laughs> I, I want to make it clear, I do not expect you to speak for all women. If we, <laughs> if I get another person who is, you know, African American or Hispanic or whatever, I don't expect them to speak for all of that race. But I do want to include folks who have different life experiences. And mm. you know, I will not be perfect. Um, None of us are. 
But <laughs> I did want to point that out with this movie is that I do want to say that if this movie was made 20 years ago, earlier in the franchise, they might have been much more, you know, this we might not have had that. I think you're right. Yeah. Like I said, this is this is one that's for, I think, think you know, families of all kinds is, is something here. I mean, that's kind mm-hmm. of the point of the story is that you have a, a Zerud, a Pokemon, and a human that it has chosen to basically adopt. And I think that's an important point to bring up here. Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess at this point we just got to go in. Uh, I've been talking for over two hours. It'll edit down a little <laughs> bit shorter. This is these are never fun to edit, but it is usually <laughs> worth it in the end. What do you overall think of this movie? Like ranking wise, experience wise. I mean, obviously, I think both of us would have loved to have seen this in an actual movie theater, but circumstances simply did not permit it. Japan is kind of lucky if they got anything out of that. Um, I don't know how how, vid- how much video streaming is a thing there. Like, I know that during the pandemic they've done, with some of the movies they've done, like, premium streaming authorings where you you spend an extra fee to get, like, they've done that for, like, Trolls War Tour, Scoob, a couple other ones, uh, Mulan, and stuff like that. Possibly in part based on the reception of Mewtwo Strikes Back uh, evolution in terms of viewership, um, but... That, that was that was a bit of a ramble there, but where does this actually <laughs> rank in in there? Do you think like is this? I you seem to. I think both of us really like this movie, uh-huh. but like overall, I think maybe of the reboot trilogy, I think Power of Us like might be the one I appreciate the most. I mean, I don't have kids, so <laughs> um, I, I hope that someday when I do, that my years of running a Pokemon League will at least have prepared me at least slightly for it. <laughs> Um, so maybe I can't relate to this as much as I would like, but I do think it's it's pretty well made, and it's certainly worth discussing. I think we've, we'll we'll be coming back to this in some forms, referencing it and things like that. So definitely one of the better movies, and as far as I'm concerned, the reboot trilogy, they're all at least good. Certainly better in my mind than the the the, the X and Y generation, and uh, generally speaking, the black and white generation before it, where I think is where they started to notice that things were getting a little too dull. <laughs> mm. But, Anne, you're entitled to your opinion, so go ahead. <laughs> oh. oh, well, luckily I'm not going to go off the rails here. Like, I also really liked this movie. Um, yeah, I think definitely of the alternate timeline, this is my favorite. Um, mm. It's kind of hard for me to rank it together with the, I don't know, the anime timeline, just because to me, I very much see that Ash and alternate timeline Ash as two very different characters. But, oh gosh, this movie is so good. This movie did so much that surprised me. It did so much that I appreciate. And it did like the one thing that I always love is like they treated the Pokemon, not like they were animals, but like they are a different culture. One that humans don't always understand, but one that lives side by side with humans. Oh, gosh, it made me so happy. Ugh, I There's so much to love about this movie, and I, I'm i very happy with it. I'm so glad we got to watch it. I'm so glad it finally released. <laughs> yeah, I will not begrudge you for liking, you know, saying this is the best <laughs> of the three. It's, I think that's a valid choice. It's not maybe my pick. Of, of of the three alternate universe ones, but I think it's definitely a solid entry and does some things very, very yeah. well. And so. the voice cast um, on I fire, I, like oh, Sarah Natacheni is like she's really coming in to her own as Ash. I'm loving it. I'm I'm here for it. Mm. 
Yeah, and, and actually, I used to point out, there's some neat little returns here, like one of the uh, voice actors, uh, uh, person, uh, Megan Hollingshead, who played uh, Nurse Joy and Officer Jenny during the first, she left before the dub switch over, like a season or two before that, uh, but she has a role. If you listen really carefully to some of the, one of the, the, the female characters she plays, you can hear, yeah, that's a little bit of original Nurse Joy in there. But, you know, I think they put together a good product despite some of the areas where I think they could still improve, so... I definitely like this one. Some parts, I'm not sure how often I'm going to rewatch it, just because in part of some of the dark elements that are, mm. I'm still kind of grappling with, to be honest. Yeah. But it's definitely a, another solid effort. So, well, with that out of the way, what's our next discussion? Well, we will get to deconstructing Pokemon music at some point, but you know, this has been a busy, busy month or so for Pokemon music. Really, a busy year. And so we want to cover as much as we can. And so our next thing that we want to cover is the music of Pokemon 25, the album. So yes, this came out also earlier this month, and I picked it up digitally. I picked it up on CD. I plan on picking up the vinyl when that releases in February next year for, I guess, Pokemon Day. Because I need to own it three times. Come on. Um, But uh, I think what's going to happen there is we're going to it's not officially related to the to the Secrets of the Jungle movie, but they released a week apart. And I think there are, at least in some of the songs and some of the music videos, some definite similarities to the movie. And we're going to sort of treat it as an extension of this discussion. But that is sort of our next one. We'll probably each pick out a couple songs from there to, to focus on. But until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on. Thank you for having me. This has been Stephen Reich. All right, folks, thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter.